What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. Today, we got a very dark episode for you, a very tragic event that occurred in 1997. Nearly 24 hours after cracks of gunfire silenced the morning buzz at Pearl High School, Luke Woodham stepped into the sunlight for the first time since being arrested. Security was tight. I mean, you know the difference between right and wrong. Yes, sir. We also have confirmation from Pearl Police Chief Bill Slade that two people are confirmed dead, at least four injured. I try to be nice, and a few people like but a lot of people were scared of me. And uh, most people just hated me. I didn't want to kill my mother. I didn't want to. Uh, I do love my mother. Anybody that, that lived through that has nightmares. How can you not remember that? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. I'm your host, Josh, joined in the studio by my co-host, Austin. Hey, man. How's it going? Doing all right. Doing all right. Little, little sick today. I've had a really bad cough, so I apologize if uh, I sound a little bit different than normal. I feel like my voice kind of gets a little bit deeper and crackly there, so apologies for that. But we're also joined by our producer, Daniel. How's it going, man? How's it going, everybody? Today, we got a very dark episode for you, um, a very tragic event that occurred in 1997, and an individual, was a teenager at the time of these events, who, I mean, just went down an absolute path of darkness and, you know, trying to understand why this happened is, I think, one of the biggest things and most difficult things to wrap your head around. And this individual is Luke Woodham. And this particular story actually involves two cases, the murder of Luke's mother, Mary Ann, as well as the 1997 Pearl High School shooting. And, you know, whenever we cover tragic events like this, I always want to do it with as much care as possible. And my main reason for covering these events is I feel sometimes they get lost to history because we've had so many of these types of events since the Pearl High School shooting in 97 that it's almost like we forget about it. Yeah, they get erased to some degree, but this is an important one because this happened pre-Columbine. This was kind of the first of its kind, Um, and there are just some interesting aspects that we should remember, I don't know, trying to move forward currently now where it seems to happen all the time. Um, It's good to look back at kind of the original... Uh, how it how it all began, you know? Yeah, and I think it's it's good to try to understand why these things happen. And I think in this case, one of the biggest takeaways that you'll have is how crucial parenting is. Yes, with young teenagers, especially, and understanding what they're doing, what they're getting into. Because Luke, you know, he has a very tough time in school. And he kind of falls into this group that ends up being a satanic, kind of bizarre, cult-esque like like situation. Pseudo-philosophy kind of stuff. Yeah. Pretty extreme. Uh, 
this group's you know views and perspectives on the world and very violent as well so just forewarning this one's definitely a, a tough listen a tough watch you know there's lots of very terrible things that happen in here both to humans as well as animals so just forewarning before we dive into this one but you know i think it's important to tell these stories also to understand what all those people all those kids went through that day when this took place as well as the the victims in this case which are you know two children and luke's mother so with that being said you know i hate i hate to feel like i really feel like this is a bummer of an episode but you know i'm already feeling very down just thinking about this but i do feel like it's an important one to to cover and to remember uh for the sake of the victims and those that went through this tragic event so with that being said let us dive into the case of Luke Woodham. So Luke Timms Woodham was born on February 5th, 1981, and his parents were Marianne and John. And they were once described as, quote, polar opposites, as Marianne was a devout member of a local Southern Baptist church in Mississippi, and not much is known about his father other than the fact that he was very controlling over Marianne early on. Luke also had an older brother named John Woodham III, who was eight years older than him, and they all lived together in a three-bedroom home in Pearl, Mississippi. This was a quiet city with about 20,000 people just across the Pearl River from the capital of Mississippi, Jackson. As a young kid, Luke was described as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed bundle of energy. He had a big imagination and he loved to read, but early on, he was always an outcast. By kindergarten, he was already, you know, a little thicker you know a little stockier than everybody else and he also had terrible eyesight that required him to wear thick coke bottle glasses his mother was also extremely possessive of him and she would dress him in strange looking old-fashioned clothes she also gave him a cropped haircut which made him look like he had a receding hairline even as a child with the old clothes strange glasses and hair he looked like an old man at a very young age and as you can imagine, with an appearance like this, he became an easy target for the bullies at school. Back home, life wasn't much better either. Luke's brother, John Jr., often physically and verbally abused him, and Luke's earliest memories were of his parents fighting. So just, you're already picturing what his home life was like. His school life was terrible, his home life was just as terrible and traumatic. His mother would force John and Luke to watch the screaming matches so that she could prove that her husband treated her poorly, which is just horrible. I mean, talk about a fast way to mess up your kid is to like have them participate or take sides in a Yeah, it's manipulation argument. early on, yeah. After all this, John tried to stay out of the house as much as possible, and Luke would often escape to the backyard to play with the family's Shih Tzu dog, Sparkle. By the time Luke was seven or eight years old, his parents divorced after countless years of fighting. His father abandoned the family and never tried to stay in contact with his children, and Luke blamed himself for his parents' divorce. At an early age, he sank into a deep depression. Marianne was often busy working a full-time job as a receptionist, and when she wasn't working, she'd go out with friends or go on dates, leaving Luke and John at home. When Marianne was home, she'd dole out very strict punishments. One time she caught Luke smoking a cigarette and as a punishment, she forced him to smoke two packs in a row until he was sick. Another time he caught Luke throwing food out in the trash, so she dug it out and made him eat it. 
At school, Luke was constantly teased. The other kids called him weird, chunky, and tubby. His mother would also make him kiss her on the cheek when she dropped him off at school in front of everyone. Other students would often crack incest jokes. And eventually, it wasn't just name-calling and jokes. Some students began physically bullying him by the time he reached high school. And, as you can imagine, with somebody having an experience like this at school, he did terrible in his classes. His grades got so bad that he had to repeat ninth grade. And his writing assignments at school reflected just how depressed and dark his thoughts had become. One assignment, he was asked to write about how he would spend the day as his teacher. And this is absolutely shocking. He responded, quote, I would go crazy and kill all of the other teachers. Then I would slowly and very painfully torture all of the principals to death. He later wrote, quote, Then I would do acid. Then I would get a gun and blow my brains out all over the doggone room and leave my house to Luke Woodham. In another ninth grade writing assignment, he was asked to write about an incident that upset his parents, and instead, Luke decided to write a piece of fiction. He wrote about killing a man and shooting his dog, quote, in the butt with a pellet gun. Then he talked about going inside a church and setting a priest's wig on fire. Then he burned the church down and sang two Nine Inch Nail songs, robbed a bank, and then set the bank on fire. He then talked about killing all the bank tellers and all the police officers and National Guard that tried to stop him. In the end, he wrote, quote, but they finally caught me. What's absolutely mind-blowing is this teacher, imagine this teacher getting these assignments from him, reading this, and just not reporting it to anybody. I can't imagine. Are they not looking at these? Are they just, I don't know, are they just being lazy? Or, because this isn't someone expressing themselves. I mean, this is someone expressing themselves, but not in a healthy way, obviously. And not like metaphorically or... This is a very literal interpretation of thoughts and actions that he's thinking about. Yeah, very dark and violent thoughts and actions. And maybe it was just, you know, again, this was kind of early on before school shootings really, you know, have become a thing. And so maybe it's just kind of naive of like, yeah, you know, oh, he's a teenager. Teenagers talk about violent stuff because, I mean, in, in the teacher's defense, I'm sure there's other kids, maybe not to this degree, but we all remember being this age and like, we would say all kinds of crazy shit in school. Right. And we would, you know, we'd go play violent video games. Like we, we all had, I don't know, grown up in the U S it's like, yeah, I'm going to go and watch a violent movie, right? you know, whatever. So maybe it's not that far. So they saw it as more of just like, oh, this child's frustrated. So we best just let him get it out on paper, hopefully, maybe. I don't know. It could be something like that. Yeah. It is very shocking, though, that this was not even reported to a counselor Honestly. or administration and just be like, hey, maybe just like sit him down and like let's let him vent to you about why he wrote this. Yeah, exactly. So clearly Luke's in a dark place here, but the one positive thing in his life was his girlfriend, Christina Menifee. Christina had just moved to Pearl from Florida with her father and stepmother. Her parents had divorced 10 years earlier and she had lived with her mother, but after an incident with her stepfather, she ended up going and living with her dad and stepmother. Now, it's unclear what happened between her and her stepfather, but she became estranged entirely from him and her mother. When she first attended Pearl High, 
you know, as a new student, she didn't know anybody. Luke was one of the first people to talk to her and they bonded over being, they were both children of divorce and they both loved animals. Christina actually had a dog of her own and a hamster. Luke had a dog, two cats and a snake. Luke eventually got up the courage to ask her out on a date and Christina surprisingly accepted. Luke saw this short-lived relationship as basically the highlight of his entire life. He had only been on one date up until now and rarely talked to girls. Christina later admitted, which is kind of harsh, she only dated him because she felt bad for him since he didn't have many friends. Luke later confessed that he loved her, quote, more than anything on this earth, I actually had someone to love and someone that loved me for the first time in my life. Christina's father, Bob, had inspected all of his daughter's boyfriends before, and he really didn't notice anything off about Luke. He was maybe a bit quiet and a bit odd, but besides that, he had nice manners. He even called Bob sir so often to the point that Bob jokingly told him, just, hey, cut it out, man. You don't have to call me sir. Luke was soon very controlling of Christina. He never wanted her to spend time with her other friends. He wanted Christina purely for himself. Christina also began thinking it was strange that Luke's mother, Marianne, would join them on all their dates. She thought Marianne was as possessive as her son was of her. So Christina finally ended the relationship on October 1st, 1996. In the end, they only ever went on three dates over the course of about three weeks. Luke handled the breakup terribly. He hinged all of his emotions and self-esteem on Christina, and he later said, quote, I didn't eat, I didn't sleep, I didn't want to live. It destroyed me. And he later wrote, quote, No one truly loved me. No one ever truly cared about me. I only loved one thing in my whole life, and that was Christina Menifee. But she was torn away from me. Pretty dramatic. Um, I know... You know, when you're a teenager, you have your emotions are kind of heightened, a lot of hormones, but that's uh, incredibly dramatic. I think a bit too dramatic here, I would say. He then blamed his failed relationship on his mother and became suicidal. One day he even stuck a gun barrel in his mouth, but he was talked out of it by a friend. He then became extremely isolated and lonely in the months that followed. That summer break, all he did was work at the local Domino's Pizza, read, eat, and sleep. He rarely ever left the house unless if it was to work. But then he came across a new friend that would end up changing his life. And that friend was Grant Boyette. So let's talk about Grant a little bit more. Grant was two years older than Luke, and he was introduced through another friend named Donald Brooks. Grant was fairly popular in school, and he was the local game master at Pearl High. Grant was later described by the LA Times as, quote, painfully thin, with bony arms, severe cheekbones, and sunken eye sockets. An investigator later described him as just, quote, wormy. He looked a bit odd, but he had a good reputation at school, and he came from a devout Baptist family. His parents were respected in the community and were deeply involved in their local church. Grant's Sunday school teacher even said that he was, quote, quiet, polite, Christian boy. But some thought that this was just a disguise. His inner circle friends knew him as having a short temper. He'd sometimes have outbursts and grab his friends by the neck if they made him angry. And he would threaten them saying, quote, don't make me do something I don't want to do. Another friend described him as Machiavellian. 
and he had a fascination with Adolf Hitler and Friedrich Nietzsche. Interesting idols here. <laughs> I know. Nietzsche wasn't a Nazi himself, but his works are still debated to this day. The problem was that his sister Elizabeth took over his estate when his mental health declined, and she edited newer versions, changing his text to include Nazi ideologies, and overall just creating a new book called The Will to Power. We've mentioned this before because, I don't know, a lot of people are drawn to Nietzsche. I'm not super well-versed in his stuff, but I know he's kind of, people have called him a nihilist. It's like the death of God. So you can see how kind of an edgy, depressed teenager would latch on to some of this stuff. It's like the removal of moral principles. Yeah. You know, like you don't need any of that. You don't need a God to tell you what's right or wrong. Right. So it's possible the boys were influenced by this book or, you know, since they were teenagers, they could have just misrepresented or understood the text entirely. I barely had the capacity to understand philosophy in college, right. let, let alone in high school. So Yeah, I certainly wasn't reading like philosophy books in high school, right? unless you call the Bible a philosophy book, but uh, yeah, I, I guess, guess you could to some extent. Yeah, You know, I was reading... Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Yeah. Oh, that was where I was into like dystopian sci fi and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah. What's interesting too is that they were also inspired by the writings of Anton LaVey. And we've talked about him before here. We have a whole episode, in fact, on Mr. LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. After reading more, Grant had taken on an amoral philosophy and he believed there is no such thing as right or wrong, which Kind of sounds familiar. We were talking about somebody just this past week. Right. Same same belief system here. One of Grant's friends later said that, quote, Grant liked Adolf Hitler a whole lot and admired his tactics. He liked the way he could influence people. Grant often made friends with underclassmen because they looked up to him, which in turn gave him more influence over them. He would also use controversial historical figures like Hitler and his tabletop RPGs to be a tyrant. Grant would sometimes refer to the gaming group as the, quote, the Fourth Reich, and they would greet each other with Nazi salutes. So you can kind of see where this is going. Not down a not-so-good path. In high school, Grant decided to form a group of outcasts and misfits, and they were called the Croth, which was the original name for the role-playing friend group, and Grant claimed that the name came from his true father, Satan. It's unclear what Croth actually means but in grant's rpg world it was the last name of two characters who were born into riches and later murdered their parents before taking over the world and several planets very bizarre grant naturally became the group's leader and he referred to himself as quote the master of high demons he even started wearing a patch with the letters mhd on his shoulder he also told the others that he always carried a handgun and a wad of cash on him and he also claimed he had a fully automatic AK-47 stashed at home. And once members joined the Croth, they weren't allowed to leave. If any member doubted the group, Grant warned them, quote, You know too much about the group. You're either with us or you're dead. When Grant invited Luke to join his small group of outcasts, he couldn't turn it down. As he had felt alone most of his life, and this was a chance to finally have a group of friends. Up until now, Luke hadn't seen Grant's darker side. At first, he didn't know that Grant was in Adolf Hitler or Friedrich Nietzsche, but his influence would soon impact Luke. When Luke joined the Croth, it had seven members, 
And when they hung out, it wasn't that much different than any other teen hangout at the time. You know, get together, play video games, listen to music. They were uh, big fans of Marilyn Manson. And they also loved to read. And they talked about philosophy and role-playing rule books. And one of Luke's favorites was a Star Wars RPG, which I didn't even know there was a Star Wars RPG. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, how do you feel... This isn't the first time that RPGs, role-playing games, have come up in like these satanic-esque teenage cults. Do you think there's any... Is it just a coincidence or is there something to it? That's a good question. I think I think it's hard to give a definitive answer. I think it just depends on the individual, right? And like where you go with it. Does it... I mean, I partake in rpg games and yeah. you know dungeons and dragons when i was younger and you know plenty of rpg that's like rpgs are my favorite types of video games because the immersion that they provide but yeah depending on where that immersion goes it can definitely could you know dilute reality for you a little bit yeah and i we'll we'll get into the satanic panic in a little bit but this was you know around that time it was starting to fizzle out more in the late 90s but you know, they did, all the parents were like, don't let your kids play D&D because it's a satanic thing, which I was in a D&D crew for like two to three years. It was some of the most fun I've ever had with a with a game. But I wonder if it, part of it was, and I know Daniel and I had a little aside um, off mic, but we talked about the detail of his letters or his, his essays in English class and how it's disturbing because it's so detailed that it feels like a fantasy. And so I wonder if that fantasy with the aspects of role playing, it's like the two are interconnected. So it's like this idea of fantasy when you're having these incredibly dark thoughts, you can, it's kind of a blank canvas that you can just interject your darkest thoughts into. And that's kind of, that's the appeal of role playing games in general is that you can kind of just play it how you want. So maybe it's, that's why it draws so much attention from, I don't know, crews that are a bit disturbed. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's plenty of games that kind of feed into that. I mean, most notably Grand Theft Auto, right? Right, yeah. Because it's like you can basically, you know, either stick to your morals in that game or you can, you know, throw them out the window. Right. And you know, act out basically anything you want. Yeah. I always throw them out the window, but I've never had the urge to do, actually do something violent. Right. So there is a disconnect there, but I don't know. I just found it interesting that there's always the coincidence or maybe not a coincidence of role-playing games connected to kind of these teenage satanic cults. Well, and I think too, the big, big, I think the big thing with these is the isolation aspect of it. You know, like for us, you know, we could get into these things, but then we were still connected to the rest of, you know, our friends and school and teachers and stuff. We weren't isolating ourselves and kind of shutting everyone else outside of our world, right? Like when we play these games, we get lost in it and we get immersed, but we we come back out. We had other things that would pull us back out and kind of remind us that oh yeah that's just a fantasy it's just kind of a temporary escape from real life and i think when you don't have that or there's nothing beyond this kind of like fantasy world uh, that you have with your friends it's much harder to 
see the other side, you know, and so everything kind of starts meshing and blending together. And I think that's kind of what's happening here is like they're so disconnected from the rest of their school, their teachers, and they don't have any other activities outside of this group. They basically live for this group at this point. And they derive all of their feelings, all of their happiness, all of their joy from this very dark place, right? Yeah, I like that theory. We all love our pets, right? I have a lot of pets at home. I've got 10 to be exact. I've got three cats, four dogs, and a couple of rabbits to go along with it. But my cats, one of my biggest things I have never liked is the nasty canned cat food that i've had to feed them for so so long it smells absolutely terrible it stinks up the whole house and honestly it does not look very nutritional it just looks like a bunch of goo in a can but that has all changed because of smalls cat food what's great about smalls is that their recipes are protein packed and they're made with preservative free ingredients that you'd find in your fridge and it's delivered right to your door What I love about Smalls is A, the convenience of it. It ships right to my door. I just unload the box into my refrigerator. It comes in a bunch of different types of blends, depending on what your cats like, whether it's fish or poultry. And at this point, you're probably wondering, why can't I just feed my cat kibble? Well, believe it or not, your cute kitty descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey food. And your cat isn't any different. They still need fresh, protein-packed meals to be at their absolute best. Other cat food brands know this, but they choose to put their wallets first. They fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I can't even pronounce. One of my cats was the runt of his litter, and he's just like the smallest little male cat ever. It's like six pounds, and so, and because Smalls is so protein-packed, he's actually been able to put on a little bit more weight, which he's never been able to do before with other cat food brands. So I absolutely love it. I highly recommend to anybody with cats to try Smalls out. You won't regret it, and your cats will absolutely love it. It's 2024, so if you're still feeding your cat kibble, what are you doing? Head over to smalls.com slash lights out and use promo code lights out at checkout for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code lights out for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code lights out for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. At first, Luke saw the group as a fun way to hang out and be introduced to new books. He began reading Aristotle, Plato, and Dostoevsky. Sorry, not great with Russian pronunciations, but he later admitted, quote, I went from failing the ninth grade to a few months later reading books on astrophysics. So that's a big jump. Yeah, and I I think that he's giving himself too much credit here because I don't think, I don't know, being this young, I don't think you're truly retaining what's going on here. I don't think you, I don't think your mind is developed enough. May, and I could be wrong. Maybe 16 year olds could totally understand crime and punishment or Aristotle or Plato. Maybe I'm underestimating them. I don't know, but maybe he's overestimating himself a little bit here. Well, I wouldn't really be surprised, honestly. I mean, if he's like brand new to these concepts, right? What, in a year, you all of a sudden, like, your brain grows three sizes? I don't know. Which, again, it doesn't really, you know, if he really did understand these texts, I have a hard time thinking that he's going to then go such a dark route. Right, right? true. It's not like Aristotle and Plato are, like, leading you down a path of destruction. That's a great point. Right? So I'm like, eh, he's probably, like, pulling a few things that kind of fit in with what the group 
is yeah, what it believes yeah. as a whole. And we've mentioned that before, you know, it's, it's called, uh, it's called confirmation bias, right? right? You just, you just look what you want to look for and you, you know exactly what you're getting into because you're just going to pull out what you want. But soon enough, the group started using Luke's house on Barrow Street as their go-to hangout spot since his mother worked and went out with friends. He was basically never home and he always offered up his house as a place to hang out. And it didn't take very long before he became a dedicated member of the Croth. This was when Grant decided to bring him into the inner circle and he finally told Luke his secret that he often prayed to Satan. Grant allegedly told Luke, quote, Satan's chosen you to be a part of my group. You have the potential to do something great. At first, Luke doubted the satanic aspect of the group as he saw it was more of a sideshow that Grant was interested in, but one event soon changed his mind. According to Luke, there was once a friend of his named Danny who would always pick on him. Luke began to resent him, so he went to Grant for advice. Later, Grant headed over to Luke's house with a copy of the Necronomicon, which is the Book of the Dead. Now, this is a strange part because the Necronomicon is a fictional book of spells that actually doesn't exist in our reality. The concept was initially started by the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, who I, I love some of his work, but he's definitely a controversial figure for his racism and whatnot. But he never actually wrote the book itself. He just wrote about it. It was just a book that kind of existed in his universe. And he later allowed others to build off the original concept, which is why you see the Necronomicon in the Evil Dead series, or I think even the Jason Friday the 13th series, it comes up. So I don't know exactly what Necronomicon they were using here, but Grant used a version of this fictional book and a pentagram to cast a spell on Danny, but supposedly they had made a mistake. When Grant recited the spell... Luke was thinking of a different boy when he was supposed to be keeping his thoughts directed on Danny. The other boy he was thinking about was named Rocky, which was one of Danny's close friends. The next night, as Luke watched Saturday Night Live, he heard a knock on the door, and it was one of Luke's friends. He had stopped by to show off his new Crystal uniform. Crystal is a southern fast food chain, and his friend had just gotten a job there. Not long after, Danny stopped by, and Danny told them that Rocky had been walking across the Lakeland Drive that night after sundown, and he had been wearing black clothes after dark. He was hard to see, so he was struck and killed by a vehicle. In Luke's eyes, this meant that Grant's spell had worked. This moment changed his entire perception of Satanism and the powers of black magic, and from then on, he was a firm believer. Now that he had seen the powers of magic, Grant decided to bring Luke toward the top of the Croth hierarchy. Some of the other members thought that Luke's rise to power was just because Grant saw how easily he could control him. They also genuinely believed that Grant had the power to summon demons. Here's a side note here that I found interesting. Surprisingly, there was no reported drug or alcohol abuse in the Croth during this time frame. Um, That's even scarier to me. Right. This is sober thoughts here. Yeah. Whoa. And Grant and Luke's even still attended church through March of 1997, even though, you know, supposedly they mocked it kind of behind closed doors. And Luke was still an outstanding employee at Domino's Pizza. He was even aiming for a junior management position. So on paper, these kids, they seemed like church-going kids. They held down jobs. They didn't drink. They didn't smoke. So 
you know, on the surface level, it doesn't look like anything's concerning, but behind closed doors, it's like, hey, black magic, Satanism, demons, a lot of dark stuff going on. So one of the members thought that Luke was a prime target for Grant's demons because Luke was, quote, evil-minded. And here's one of Luke's journal entries from April 1997 that might give you more of a glimpse into where Luke was at at this point. Also, I... I want to preface this by just saying I don't enjoy reading these excerpts, but I think they're important for us to begin to understand why something like this occurs. Well, it's really a glimpse into like his soul. Exactly. These are personal writings. Yeah. So, quote, I am the hatred in every man's heart. I am the epitome of all evil. I have no mercy for humanity, for they created me. They tortured me until I snapped and became what I am today. My advice to any man who has been tortured by humanity is this. Let these words ring through our heart, mind, and soul. Hate humanity. Hate humanities. Hate what humanity has made you. Hate what you have become. Most of all, hate the accursed God of Christianity. Hate him for making humanity. Hate him for making you Hate him for flinging you into a monstrous life you did not ask for nor deserve. Fill your heart, mind, and soul with hatred until it's all you know. Until your conscience becomes a fiery tomb of hatred for the goodness in your soul, hate everyone and everything. Hate where you were and are. Hate until you can't anymore. Then learn, read poetry books, philosophy books, history books, science books, autobiographies, and biographies. Become a sponge for knowledge. Study the philosophies of others and condense the part you like as your own. Little side note there. He's he's essentially admitting to confirmation bias right there. Yep. Study the philosophies of others and condense the parts you like as your own. Make your own rules. Live by your own laws. For now, truly, you should be at peace and your own true self. Live your life in a bold new way. For you, dear friend, are a superman. That's a lot to unpack. Right. I think that's the most instances of hate I've ever had to read. Um, It clearly isn't coming from a positive place. No, I mean, he's clearly angry with his upbringing, you know, sort of, you know, being led down this path that has only turned into suffering in his eyes and you know, depression and all these things he's been feeling. And it seems like when he did start, you know, when he joined the Croth and he's starting to learn, you know, other ideologies and he's kind of having a major turning point and almost feeling empowered by what he's reading. And, and it's very clear he's becoming convinced that this is the actual truth and the true way to live. And, everything else should just be eliminated from society does ring true i don't know to some of the older ones hellfire club which i think was their motto do what thou wilt was an extension of uh who was it i don't know that goes way back though so yeah it's kind of that same core concept except i don't think the hellfire club took it as seriously as this but yeah the do what thou wilt just you know yeah, it's from Thelema. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep, exactly. Alistair Crowley. So, 
that do what thou wilt uh, ideology, I think, can be really problematic here. Because as much as it can be empowering, it can be dangerous as well. Yeah. You know, when, I mean, unlike we've talked about before, whenever you throw out the idea of right and wrong, and I mean, you're throwing out good and evil, then what is there? Right. What kind of, you know, that, that's like a neutral plane of existence with no consequences, essentially. Exactly. And yeah, and it love doesn't exist in that world. Right. Not once does he utter that word, right? And I think also it's like we don't want 16 year olds to do what thou wilt there's you need guidance and you need discipline because we don't know and if we do whatever we want it turns into a clockwork orange right it's just this scary place yeah essentially a ticking time bomb yeah and that's exactly what what happens here over time the cross began wearing long dark trench coats to school which we've seen that before and we see that after these events but they developed the mantra we can't move forward until all of our enemies are gone a very dangerous thought there in luke's eyes his greatest enemy had become christina menifee his ex-girlfriend and since grant knew this according to luke he often urged luke to kill her so that he'd never have to see her again grant would always preach about the beauty of death and luke had fallen deeper into grant's belief system now that he supposedly believed spells could affect the material world he might have felt that this was the first time he had power and control in his life. By April of 1997, Luke and Grant became even more violent. Luke would later write about an incident in his diary. Forewarning, this is very disturbing, involving uh, violence towards an animal. So just heads up. On Saturday of last week, I made my first kill. The date was April 12, 1997, about 4.30 p.m. The victim was a loved one. My dear dog, Sparkle which is just so sad because it's like his best friend. His parents literally got him for to have a companion. Yep. In graphic detail, Luke wrote about how he and an accomplice abused and killed his family dog. His accomplice was later confirmed to be none other than Grant. And here's what they did. Horrific. After breaking one of the dog's legs by beating it with a stick and leaving her in agony for several days, Luke's older brother, John Jr., said they needed to take the dog to the vet because it was limping everywhere it went. Luke realized that if they took Sparkle to the vet, they would question how the dog had gotten the wounds. So instead, Luke had another plan in mind. Grant and Luke both took the Shih Tzu into the woods and stuffed her in a book bag. They beat her again, and Luke later described her howls as, quote, almost human. They laughed and doused the dog in lighter fluid and then set her on fire. Luke then threw the bag with the dog inside into a pond where they watched it sink, and he later wrote, it was pure beauty. That's just terrifying. And again, the reason Luke's parents even got Sparkle in the first place was so that he'd have a loyal companion since he didn't have any friends and was alone a lot. Later, when his mother and brother asked what had happened, Luke just suggested that their dog must have run away. As violence in the croth escalated, some of the members began distancing themselves from the group. One of their friends, Donald Brooks, stopped showing up after a while and Donald had actually stolen his father's credit card and charged around $15,000 for computer and stereo equipment, as well as a few car parts. He later left the group supposedly because Grant suggested that Donald should kill his father for giving him an 8 p.m. curfew and grounding him. That's just how extreme they were. He said they could put poison on the doorknobs of the Brooks family home in order to kill him. Donald later reported the incident to the police and told them how dangerous his friends had become 
but the police did not take him seriously. This is the first misstep of many. It was also around this time that a local domestic abuse shelter received an anonymous call. A neighbor had called to report loud yelling in the Woodham home. Later, a counselor stopped by the house to see what was going on, and Marianne said that she had no idea what the anonymous caller was even talking about. She claimed there were no problems at home and no one was yelling. Around the same time, Luke complained he was seeing demons that Grant had been sending over to his house. Ah, oh, just shows you like kind of world this guy's living in at this point. He thinks demons are invading his house. Right. And the fact that now we have what three kind of orbiting uh, eyes on this situation where it was the teachers reading the essay, the police ignored Donald Brooks, and now the domestic abuse shelter counselor shows up, but nothing really comes of it. So we have these three eyes orbiting this problem, uh, and it's unfortunate that uh, no one's really seeing what's behind the curtain here. Again, it's probably just that, you know, oh, teenagers are going to be teenagers. They're going to, yeah. you know, do what they're going to do. And I think it's this, like you said earlier, it's the naivete of since now we're so hyper aware of school shooters, maybe, yeah, we can, I don't know. I don't know if I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because clearly there's something wrong here that they should have seen. But yeah, it, I don't know. Maybe it's just the time. This episode is also brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals make eating better every day so much easier wherever tomorrow takes you be ready with pre-portioned chef crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door you'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from including keto calorie smart vegan and veggie and so much more and there's even more to enjoy with 55 nutrition packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious so what are you waiting for get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go so unlike other meal kits these are ready to eat you just heat them up in the microwave and you're good to go and i'm honestly impressed with how delicious factors meals are the tomato basil chicken risotto with parmesan broccoli i love broccoli a lot of people hate broccoli but i absolutely love it i love pesto and who doesn't love risotto their meals only take two minutes to heat up because you know there's some nights where you're like i don't want to cook at all but i don't want to order takeout or delivery so factors meals are great they're great for the workplace as well just you know throw them in the fridge pop them in the microwave you got lunch in no time they also have snacks, smoothies, and more, even fresh juices, which are great. And they have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. So you're probably wondering, well, this has got to be expensive, Josh. Well, they've done the math, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. And it's flexible for your schedule, which we all love flexibility and convenience. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. And best of all, there's no prep, no mess. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. So, if you haven't tried Factor, head to factormeal.com slash lightsout50 and use code lightsout50 to get 50% off. That's code lightsout50 at factormeal.com slash lightsout50 to get 50% off. As that school year ended, Luke kept thinking about murder as a way to solve his problems. He kept thinking about the Croth's mantra, we can't move forward until all our enemies are gone. So here's a journal entry towards the end of the school year. Quote, 
This night, June 3rd, 1997, is a monumentatious night. Uh, He just makes up a word there, monumentatious. With this writing, I do swear that I shall never get myself in a position where I can be hurt by a woman ever again. To myself, I swear this, and to the higher powers, I swear this. He then supposedly signed this entry in his own blood. Luke had recently been turned down by another student who said she wouldn't date him even if he was the last man on earth. So Luke's kind of in a rough spot with the ladies here. And that summer, the Croth dropped the plans to murder Donald Brooks' father. Instead, they began putting together a plan to terrorize Pearl High School. After mocking up the plan, it went through a series of changes over the next few months. Supposedly, one of the original plans had been to set a few fires inside the school and cut the phone lines. Then they would target the students on their hit list. Christina Menefee would be the main target of this hit list. And meanwhile, Luke had been stalking her and noting the different boys she was hanging out with. The plan then allegedly changed into shooting students after the tardy bell rang and rigging up the school with explosives. And the final plan was revised into only a few steps. Luke, who had been promoted to the group's assassin position, would go to Pearl High School and open fire. He would then leave the school and target the junior high school only a few miles away. The members of the Croth would then meet up in Jackson. From there, they would drive to New Orleans and then head across the border to Mexico. And from Mexico, they would cross the water to Cuba. Yeah, it sounds like a real doable plan there. Yeah, where are you guys going to get the money for this? So when they made these plans, some members claimed that they thought it was all just make-believe kind of like one of their role-playing games like oh we're just kind of bullshitting and even one of the members later said quote they talked all kinds of shit but for some the this plan i guess was very real especially for luke so there's there's the complication here and like you were saying some are realize that this is just a fantasy that they dip their toes into and then leave but luke's having a problem here where the fantasy if it ever was a fantasy or not, who I don't think will ever get the true answer, but he's it's kind of meshing into his real life here. So on the night of September 30th, 1997, Luke and his mother Marianne had a massive blowout. Luke wanted to borrow his mother's car, the Chevy Corsica, but Marianne told him no. He didn't even have his driver's license yet, and he also had terrible eyesight. So she said, final answer, no. After... The screaming match, Luke ended up calling his friend Lucas Thompson, who was another member of the Croth. On the phone, he whispered to Lucas, I'm going to kill my mom in the morning. Lucas later recalled that Luke sounded strangely calm, and he had even described in detail how he was going to kill his mother by stabbing her to death. After they hung up the phone, Lucas didn't really know what to think about the conversation He still didn't believe that Luke was capable of following through with something like this. And like we just talked about, they talked all kinds of shit. So, you know, Lucas was basically thinking, this isn't really going to happen. He's just frustrated. At some point that evening, Luke was already carrying out his plan, though. He unplugged the landline to the phone in his mother's room and hid the cord in a kitchen closet. And he later even admitted that he did this so she wouldn't be able to call. 911. Luke then set his alarm for just before 5 a.m. the next morning. And 
He believed that Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible, said that the best time for Satanic rituals was 5 a.m. And I tried to look for this, and I don't, I think this is unconfirmed. Um, and maybe he's just throwing Anton LaVey under the bus or something. I've never heard that 5 a.m. Is, is the best time for rituals here. So that next morning at 5.30 a.m., Marianne's alarm clock went off. Luke was already up and ready. And as Marianne walked down the hallway towards the kitchen, Luke appeared behind her with a baseball bat. He swung at her face, hitting her just below her right eye, and the next blow hit her in the right cheek. The next blow broke her jaw. And Marianne actually stumbled back, and she was able to retreat to her bedroom where she slammed the door, but Luke charged through the door after her. Marianne then crawled onto the bed, trying to get away from her son, and saw he was carrying the old hickory-handled knife from the kitchen, and Luke ended up slashing her 11 times and then stabbed her seven more times. All that, uh, all that pent-up anger and rage and resentments all coming out this moment. Yep. Literally. And it, it turns out that eight of those initial 11 slash wounds were on her palms, fingers, and wrists were defensive wounds. And the slashing attacks later made investigators believe that Luke was actually hesitating to follow through with those plans. Those, those minimal slashing attacks were kind of him holding back and hesitating. But at some point, he did decide to stab her fatally. And three of the seven stab wounds ended up killing her. One punctured her right lung, another punctured her left lung, and the third actually struck her in the heart. According to the medical examiner, Dr. Stephen Hain, Mary Ann most likely went into shock from blood loss after the injuries, and she died minutes later. Luke then put a pillow over his mother's face, and an investigator later reported, which we've seen this before, this is a common modus operandi for killers. Covering the victim's face is usually seen as a sign of remorse. We saw that in the Donald Hartung case yep. where he killed his family. Luke then went to the kitchen to bandage himself. When he stabbed his mother, his hand had slid up the blade and he had cut himself a few times. And later that morning, his friend Lucas ended up calling him back. You know, Lucas is probably worried over there on the other end. Like, is he actually going through with this? He asked if he did it. And according to Lucas, Luke sounded a bit teary-eyed and he confessed that yes, he had just killed his own mother. Lucas didn't truly believe him until he saw police cars racing towards Pearl High School not long after. After Luke had killed his mother, he allegedly also called Grant, who had graduated last spring, and Grant was now at community college, but it's unclear exactly what they talked about in this phone call. After they hung up, then Luke went and wrote his manifesto. It ended up being about five handwritten pages, and only some of it has been published for the public. One line read, quote, I am malicious because I am miserable. The world is beating me. Wednesday 1st, 1997, she'll go down in history as the day I fought back. In another section, he wrote, quote, It was not a cry for attention. It was not a cry for help. It was a scream in sheer agony, saying that if I can't pry your eyes open, if I can't do it through pacifism, if I can't show you through displaying of intelligence, then I will do it with a bullet. And he also wrote towards the end, quote, Grant, see you in the holding cell. Luke also ended up making a last will and testament because he thought he would later be killed by police in a shootout. 
in his will, he left his possessions, his writing, and his music to each of his friends. He then left the bloody knife, the baseball bat, and a camouflage gun cover and a Marilyn Manson CD on top of his bed. And at around 7.50 a.m., he grabbed his old brother's Marlin Model 336 rifle. He had actually used this rifle to go hunting with his good friend Ryan King. And after placing the rifle into his mother's white Chevy Corsica, he headed to Pearl High School. At the school, October 1st, 1997 was an average sunny day in Pearl, Mississippi, and students, you know, made their way inside as they always did. They gathered in what's known as the Commons, a large open atrium on the school property where they could hang out until their classes began. Luke got to the school around 8 a.m. with his rifle in the car. Up until now, rampage shootings were extremely rare, especially in schools, because again, Columbine wouldn't happen for another two years. And in fact, Pearl, Mississippi alone hadn't seen a homicide in two years. Jeff Cannon, the assistant band director at Pearl High School, was on duty in the commons that morning. There were about 300 to 400 teenagers inside. Jeff had to watch over the students and take mental notes in case a fight broke out. That morning, Christina Menifee had asked one of Luke's friends where he was. She was worried about him and hadn't seen him at school for a few days. The friend told her he didn't talk to Luke anymore. Later that morning, Jeff Cannon noticed 16-year-old Luke Woodham entering the commons. He handed over a note to his friend Justin Sledge, another member of the Croth. It was later revealed that this note was Luke's manifesto, poetry, as well as his last will and testament. Justin then quickly took a friend and hid in the school library. Soon after, Jeff then noticed Luke Woodham entering the commons for a second time that morning. He thought it was odd as he passed by wearing a long, dark trench coat. It was muggy and about 70 degrees outside, and Jeff just shrugged it off. He didn't know Luke was actually hiding that Marlin hunting rifle under that long coat. A few minutes later, Jeff heard the first shot rang out at 8.06 a.m. He thought someone in the ROTC program might have actually discharged their weapon, but in reality, Luke had walked up to 16-year-old Christina Menifee and fired a bullet into her front lower neck at point-blank range. He then fired another into her left shoulder, and tragically, she died instantly. Once Jeff Cannon realized what was going on, he screamed for all the students to run. Another student, 17-year-old Lydia Dew, a friend of Christina's, was standing beside her. She attempted to run, but Luke aimed the rifle at her back and fired. Luke had once considered Lydia, quote, a ray of happiness, sunshine, and joy, and her older sister had always driven him to school, but now he shot her in the head, arm, and torso. Lydia lived for some time after being shot, and she even spoke to a teacher who later came to give her aid but she eventually died from her wounds. After Luke shot the two girls, he began firing off rounds at random, shooting from the hip. Supposedly, while he reloaded, another student named Jason tried to tackle Luke to stop him, but Luke was able to shove him away. By now, some of the students were still confused about what was happening. Some thought the sound of gunfire was just a football field cannon that was usually fired at the games when the Pearl Pirates scored. Meanwhile, Luke kept firing and students scattered, but seven more were injured. Stephanie Wiggins, a sophomore, took a bullet that shattered her hip and would later take multiple surgeries and extensive physical therapy for her to recover. Jerry safely was shot in both of his legs while trying to protect his girlfriend. After Jerry was shot, Luke stopped the shooting spree for a moment, walked over to him, and Luke said, quote, Oh, Jerry, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you. Supposedly, Luke was trying to shoot another student named Kyle Foster. Kyle had gotten stuck in traffic that morning and wasn't at school during the shooting. It's believed that Luke wanted to shoot Kyle for added shock value since he was the mayor's son. Another injured student was Alan Westbrook. He had been tripped while running away. 
Luke then approached him while he was lying on the floor and shot him multiple times in the back. When the assistant band director, Jeff Cannon, later reached Alan on the ground, he thought the boy was going to die. His entire back was an open wound, but Alan ended up miraculously surviving. One of the bullets had missed his vertebra by less than an inch. He did end up being paralyzed for several months, but later he recovered. Many of Luke's other shots missed because he fired from the hip, and again, he had very poor eyesight. The missed shots went into the floor and sent shards of tile into the nearby students. After firing multiple rounds, Luke's rifle jammed, and he fumbled with the gun for a short time, but soon gave up and ran out of the school. Then the commons soon slay spread across the ground. Another student described the scene, saying, quote, People were laying everywhere, bleeding. Everyone looked dead. Jeff Cannon then followed a trail of blood leading from the commons into the band hall where he found three more of his band students who had been hit with tile shrapnel. As Luke left the commons, the school faculty still inside called emergency services and began administering first aid. Meanwhile, the assistant principal, Joel Mirak, had heard the gunshots from his office and he immediately ran out of the school toward his truck in the parking lot where he retrieved his Colt 45 handgun from the glove compartment. Joel had once been a National Guard combat unit commander. He quickly loaded his handgun with a single bullet and sprinted back toward the entrance to the commons. After the 11-minute rampage, Luke exited the doors. Joel shouted orders at Luke, telling him to stop, but Luke hurried toward his mother's Chevy Corsica. Joel kept yelling, but Luke ignored him, got inside the car, and started the engine. Joel realized that Luke might continue his spree somewhere else, and in the back of his mind, he was worried that Luke might be heading to Pearl Elementary, where his son went to school. After all, that was part of the cross' original plan. But Joel still didn't fire his weapon at Luke, as he feared the bullet might hit an innocent bystander or a student fleeing the school. While attempting to drive away, Luke got stuck behind another car parked at a stop sign in the parking lot. He honked his horn, then backed up and passed the vehicle. As he continued down the road, Joel chased after him, keeping his handgun aimed at the Corsica. Luke had barely just learned to drive and didn't have his license, and he actually had left the emergency brake on the entire ride to school, and as he tried to escape. As Joel approached, Luke was startled by seeing the assistant principal with a handgun on his side. He lost control of the car, swerved off the road, and skidded across the grass, and the course cut ended up in an embankment on the edge of the road. Joel yelled, quote, Don't move or I'll blow your head off. He then approached the car where Luke looked disheveled and breathed heavily. The jam rifle rested on the seat beside him. From Joel's memory, here's how that conversation went. Why? Joel asked him as the car door opened and he put the barrel of his gun to Luke's neck. Why did you do this? You killed my kids. Well, Mr. Merrick, Luke said, the world has wronged me and I couldn't take it anymore. You think the world has wronged you now? Joel told Luke. Wait till you get to Parchment. Parchment is a nearby prison in Mississippi and Joel at that point got Luke to lie face down on the ground. A police officer soon arrived and arrested Luke and police then found several unused bullets in Luke's jacket pocket. They also noticed a bandage on his hand. Luke said he had injured himself while killing his mother. After they found this out, they sent police officers over to the Woodham's home, and that's where they discovered Luke's mother's body. As officers investigated the school, they roped off the property, and Joel raced back inside to check on the injured students. As word spread that there had been a shooting, concerned parents raced down to the school. Jeff and Joel could see the agony in their faces, wondering if their children were okay. One of the first concerned parents to arrive was Lydia Dew's mother. Joel then took her by the hand and led her to her daughter as Lydia had already passed away from her wounds. Joel later said he didn't buy the theory that Luke had snapped after years of bullying. 
Two of his victims, including Lydia Dew, were also bullied and didn't have many friends. Joel even went out of his way to spend time with Lydia because she was socially awkward. At her funeral, Lydia's mother gave Joel one of Lydia's rings because of his kindness to her. In the aftermath, the community was torn on Joel's actions on the day of the shooting. Many saw him as a hero, but others were concerned that he had a handgun and ammunition on school property. Years later, in 2018, Joel said he was against harming teachers as a way to protect students. His quote is saying, Teachers have to teach, and that's what we should be doing. But he did advocate for placing trained personnel inside of schools. When Luke Woodham was taken back to the station, Pearl Detective Aaron Hirschfield read him his Miranda rights, and Luke waved them all. And within minutes, they recorded his full confession, and we're going to show you a few of these clips. Here's Luke talking about killing his own mother. It was all my fault that he couldn't do it right. And the more I read it, the smarter I got, the more she hated me. She just, I, I smart girl all the time, and she, and she just hated me. And she had always get an attitude with me. She had always... She was there for me. She always ran out on Friday and Saturday nights and be out with her friends and wasn't down there by yourself. I was there by myself, stuck read, and got mad. <laughs> this happens day after day. You came every day. Everyone. <laughs> she wouldn't let me do anything, but she could go out and she could party. <laughs> and, you know, by the time I got to junior high, it just it just builds up, and I hated to stay home. But I I tried being not in the trouble, so so I hope. It's it's my ninth grade year up here. She always just was against me, just always against. Me. But last night I just uh, threw it. I didn't want to kill my mother. I didn't want to. I, I do love her. It's just, I wanted to remain up for Stina. And my mom wouldn't just, God, Shirley would take the gun and take the car. You gotta understand, I did not want to. It's just the only way. That's the only He feels some remorse there for killing his mother. And just, it's just horrific to hear his rationale, you know, like he's trying to rationalize why he did it and kept saying it's the only way. Well, let's take a look at him talking about killing Christina here. I want to say I was fighting for this, but yet not. I didn't really want to. It's just... What would you have been fighting for? I wanted to do this. I wanted revenge on Christina. Christina, who's Christina? Stan Menefee, my ex-girlfriend. I broke up about a year ago. Uh-huh. And now... Charge failings. She got a girl. She's a bird person. Shut Got a rip in the heart. Right. So you got up this morning. It's okay. Calm down. So you got up this morning, and you just make, it was kind of going in your mind. Yeah, I had time to plan, saying, you know, I, well, I, I'd always do grabs for up. I'm gonna get her back. You know, I mean, I, I really meant to do it in my mind, but yeah, I didn't want to because it wouldn't be right. Yeah. I mean, you know the difference between right and wrong. Yes, sir. In the next year. That's when I met Christina. This was last year. Okay. Y'all and Sam, right? No, sir. She was younger than me. I'd met, I'd known her before then. Uh, when she was in junior high, her and another girl that I was friends with at the time, uh, me and another one of my friends, we we're going to go to the little junior high graduation dance or whatever. 
for she was gonna give me Ozzy Osbourne tickets. I went with her, so Ozzy, you know, I wanted to go see Ozzy, but we ended up not going, but me and her stayed friends, and she had become like my sister. Uh, I loved her more than any other thing on this earth. And uh, then she, a uh, friend of ours set us up, and you know, it, for a while it was just, it was perfect. I mean, nothing went wrong, nothing. I actually had somebody to love, and somebody loved me. First time in my life, only time in my life. And uh, then, she just all of a sudden one day she broke up with just and i, I was devastated I, I was going to kill myself that the, the next morning i had like go ahead not 30 30 but there's another one that's in a, a closet in my kitchen and uh i had it i had it in my mouth and one of her buddies called right then one of her buddies called and asked me if i was okay they were at the school comments and uh, using the phones in there and i told them yeah i'm okay and then a few minutes after that, I just, after that, I, I just, maybe there's some reason I was locked. I was locked in here. And then another friend of mine called me, and uh, he's graduated now. But uh, he, oh, he called me and made sure I was okay. And he came over and we talked and stuff. And uh, he made me feel a little better. I didn't want to kill myself. What's good. And uh, so then, uh, next that night, Christina called me. She's talking to me. She's telling me how sorry she was and stuff. And I was still in love with her. And so I just, you know, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Well, not yes, ma'am, but you. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, so the next day we got back together. But I don't know, it was just the second time. This this what pushed me over the edge. She just always, all the time. Uh, so did something happen yesterday? No. school or I'm on like oh okay I'm so explaining okay, the whole thing sir and she'd always flirt with other guys she always do like punk crap right to my face she always tell me how cute other guys were and all this kind of crap and it just gets to you I mean I, I loved her and uh, she just didn't care and uh finally she uh she went on a cool music trip and she flirted with one of the guys there he she let him watch her change and all this kind of crap and they hung all over each other she came back and she told me all of this told me and <laughs> then she dealt with me again and ever since then I've never been the same and that was this that was last year for like a week before Thanksgiving and uh I just I mean, you can ask anybody at school they'll tell you I just I hated, I really hated the world. Outwardly just walked around like I was going to do what happened in school. That's what it looked like. I mean, people were surprised because probably don't like us just the way I acted. And I tried to be nice, and a few people liked me, but a lot of people were scared of me. And uh, most people just hated me. Just did. Yeah. First thing that jumped out to me was when the officer asked, you do know the difference between right and wrong? And emphatically, he says yes, which, so what does that mean? Because he had been playing with this idea and all these theories and philosophers where it's like, there is no such thing as right and wrong, do what thou wilt, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but here he says, yes, sir, you know, that he does know the difference between right and wrong. And there is a, like, the good and evil kind of this exists in this reality here, but for, I don't know. So 
is he which side is he lying to is he lying about thinking that right and wrong exists or that there is no such thing i don't know based on this clip alone it makes me believe that he was kind of feeding into the croth because he just felt alone and just wanted friends and you know maybe he found it interesting and maybe he did derive some of some ideas and you know philosophies from it but this the whole time i'm watching this i feel that he's being very forthcoming and truthful with officer and i just can't help but think man if this kid had just gotten therapy and right. just had somebody you know a third party that he could talk to in this even in this way and talk about all these things and get help on how to deal with these emotions i mean when talking about the problems he had with christina it's like a lot of these problems he was facing are things tons of kids face right you know it's like very you know common teenage problems right it's like like, teenage heartbreak and you know relationships and bullying and all these things like yeah it definitely seems like it stems from insecurities too because he's talking about how and obviously we don't have christina's side of the story here unfortunately but he's like oh she used to come up to me and tell me oh i think that boy's cute and stuff and obviously that's reaching deep into his insecurities um because i don't know we don't know the context of that conversation or anything but if that is what what was enough to bring it up in your confession that clearly hit a very deep point uh in your mental state there that it was that insecurity that that was like your motivation for doing it um and i know those those feelings are obviously heightened when you're that young and it's like your first relationship but but, but yeah i agree if the, he just but he has this like predisposed you know disposition to hatred he's already got this hatred deeply rooted in himself from his mother and i feel like that spills over into his other relationships yeah and it all just gets to a boiling point where he doesn't know what to do with all this rage he considered taking his own life to deal with it to escape it and ends up not doing that and then it just kind of progresses to the next step which was acting on it and getting back at those he felt like wronged him. Danny, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Do you have any have a take on on these clips here? It really seems to me like this is a very angry child. At the end of the day, he is a child. I mean, he's ninth grade. That yeah. that, that is a child. Um it seems to have a lot of misplaced anger and he really does seem like he hasn't had a lot of guidance in his life or a lot of people to sit down and actually listen and talk to him. Um, it also seems like he struggles a lot with feeling any sense of control in his life. It seems like everywhere he goes, he feels out of control, and I know that can breed a lot of anger. Um, as far as saying he knows the difference between right and wrong, I think he really does know the difference between right and wrong. I think all of the other um, things he was saying about, even with the, even with the group, they were saying kind of like, he found a sense of com- camaraderie with his friend yeah. about the stuff. So he didn't feel alone. He had that little bit of control. I think it's also why we see a lot of these satanic killers enjoying RPGs. I think it's more of a, 
correlation instead of causation. I think it has to do a lot primarily with the feeling of a lack of control and they get that control in the yeah, games they play. Absolutely. So I, I mean, I, I think he knows the difference between right and wrong and really right now his whole view of the world is breaking. Everything, his, his whole world is crumbling in front of him right now because of decisions he made. So he's going to revert back to who he really is and who he really is is a scared child. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think it's very, I mean, I think you can tell a lot by just the way he's talking, his tone of voice, and it comes across very sincere and believable. Like you just, you know, and he's so quick to answer that question, you know, do you believe in right or wrong? And he's like, yes. Like, I think it's like, it, like you said, it's all, all of his actions are hitting him in this moment. Yeah. Cause he's even like somewhat crying and like whimpering between him speaking. And it's like, yeah, it's just a mixed bag of emotions and remorse, I think is a lot as indicated by covering his mother's face. You know, we even see that in the physical evidence here, but man, just a, a disturbing and tragic situation here. And, you know, I'm sure if Christina had a voice in this or if she could explain her side of the relationship, I'm sure we would get a much different yeah, side of the right. story here. Um, it just seems like a young man who couldn't uh, internalize his emotions correctly and didn't have the outlets in order to do it correctly. He didn't. There were no counselors. Uh, as I said before, we had multiple people orbiting this situation and no one was really including the parents you know obviously his his father has abandoned them and that must be a blow no guidance and the only person he has to bounce back on is grant and the croth and if you're dumping your issues to that crew i don't think they're going to give you a positive outlet for your problems no and they're egging him on they're like encouraging mm -hmm. him to do this violent shit yep because they feel like that's like what he's destined to do. They've diluted his mind and made him believe in this fantasy world that they've created that like ultimately this brings you closer to Satan and, you know, makes you more powerful. The classic, you know, devil worshiping, uh, cult, you know, tactics to get right. you to, to do ultimately what the leader wants you to do. And I think he just fell, fell into that trap. Yeah. But this, let's take a look at one more clip here. Um, says some pretty, bizarre things here and uh i walked into school at first got the gun i had it in my in the backseat of the car uh handed it to one of my friends justin sledge i handed i, I expected him to die today honestly i expected Mario to kill me you know i didn't lose it to justin sledge no no i didn't have my gun oh. I, didn't, like, it, uh, I had written up i'm a musician and i also write poetry and so a bunch of other stuff. I handed it and said, uh, just give this to Grant. And uh, he's one of my friends. And I had a will written there. I had a eulogy for my funeral. Uh, and, you know, on will, I pretty much said everything. Just remember me. And well, I guess the world's going to remember me now. I'm probably going to get pretty famous. We're, we're not there yet. So I know. But, uh, and so I walked outside. God, uh, I've been driving to school nervous. I, I hit, my back into my tire, hit the, well, 
side thing, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, but I just went there and, uh, got the gun, turned around, ran towards school. I yelled, this ends now. Ran inside the school, ran up to Christina, bam, right in the heart. She just ran in with the gun. Ran with the gun. And just, how'd you pick out the other people to shoot? I just, I didn't mean to shoot. I just snapped. I mean. So you don't really know who the other people are that you I, I mean. I know, I remember who it is. I just didn't know at the time. I just, well, let me I mean, tell you what happened. I mean, were you aiming at the No, sir, no, sir. I just, I mean, I, it was like I was there, but I wasn't. Okay. I feel like we hear that a lot too. It was like I was there, but I wasn't. Yeah. I just snapped. Yeah. I, I'm concerned over the, I'm going to get pretty famous. Yeah. Quote. Yeah. Um, and this is the double-edged sword. I think I think we should address this here. The double-edged sword of being a media company, we're lights out, we're a podcast, and broadcasting this young man's behavior and actions, knowing that a big incentive for these shooters is to become famous or infamous, right? It's like to get your face out there. You now have the notoriety and the status and that's the double-edged sword of media because we want to talk about this and hopefully bring some enlightening discussion here and open people's minds a little bit to why these things occur and maybe how we can mitigate it in the future. But it's also, unfortunately, at the same time, playing into getting these people famous. So it's a, it's a tough double-edged sword that we deal with here and lights out quite often. but. Uh, well, I mean, you could say that for every criminal killer. Oh, for sure. Ever, yeah. Right? Like that. Absolutely. And I think to some extent it does do that, but I think, I think it's worth it to remember, you know, because unfortunately the victims of these people are part of the story too. Right. And I don't feel it's fair to the victims to just discount everything that happened right and what they went through i think it's important as hard as it is and you know how evil these things are to understand the full story of what happens you know not 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 with the intention of like glorifying those who are perpetrating these evil acts but to try to like put ourselves in that that situation and and really like think about it and kind of try to try to experience as you know as far removed as we are from it but to just mentally kind of put ourselves there and understand what they went through it's a good mirror for sure because you know we talk about therapy insecurities and those are common things that we all deal with and here it's just manifested in a rotten way but yeah um it's it's a tough situation here but hopefully it's a bit more enlightening and reflective than it is just, hey, Luke Woodham's getting famous here. But like you said, you know, the victim story is important to tell. I know not a lot of media outlets, you know, they try and do the blank face, no name thing. But as much as I want to be a proponent of that, at the same time, I think it's a disservice because how do we mitigate these situations without diving into who this person was and what things led up to this situation so if you just make them like a blank shooter that we don't know anything about 
it's it's hard to compartmentalize why this happened yeah and if we're going to try and move forward with a solution of this you know culturally because i think it is it's a cultural cancer that we have with school shootings well it's happening no matter if we know the shooter or not right at this point i think that's just kind of not even a thing to to consider because it's like we whether we know who it is or not like these things are continuing to happen so yeah at this point i don't think we have a choice but to look at the individual to go back in their history and try to try to figure out what where does this stem from yeah and understand what why they do what they do and try to come up with solutions to hopefully mitigate that in the future especially when it comes to young young people yes committing heinous acts of violence is like there's like and as we've seen in this there's so many things here that could have been been done or put into place to help prevent this from happening in the first place i mean he had nobody you know and it's just i think we have to to dive into the individual who perpetrates the acts not to be like oh you know this is so you know the shock and awe of like what they did and it's so horrific and you know and trying to remember remember them for that but to figure out why they got to this point yeah why this happened i think like you were saying it spotlights some responsibility because we do have to remember this is a child so if a child is doing something like this, uh, where is the responsibility lying? Uh, who, who could have controlled this situation a bit more? And there's uh, the answer is typically usually more than you know one person. So it's it's, it's a complex a issue. Yeah, and there's not a simple solution to any of these things. But I feel you know I feel history is not meant to be forgotten right and that there's always something to be learned from history and there's always something there's always those to be remembered in history you know like if i you know if it was a somebody that i knew i wouldn't want to just forget about the event no matter how horrific it was and you know you want to remember you know them before that event and remember what they went through i mean i'll I'll never forget at my church actually we had uh one of the parents of the columbine uh shooting it came and speak and i don't remember it was like one of the most Im- just deeply powerful speeches i ever heard because they they gave us like a play-by-play of what happened that day and what their daughter went through and it was terrifying to listen to because it it was it was so real and raw and I remember them telling that like part of the story is too is like the bravery you know there's in these times of absolute crisis it's it's we're seeing the absolute worst of humanity but at the same token we're also seeing the best of humanity and like in this this story you know the assistant principal the assistant principal and his acts and you know the other boy that was shielding his girlfriend it's the same type of things and I think it's you know, as much evil's happening at this point in time, there's also so much good and light happening yeah. and combating this evil. For sure. And so in order to understand the full extent of it, you have to dig deep into it. And I think that's where you really, you know, as evil and heinous as these things are, and, you know, there's so much negativity that you can take away from it. I think there's also glimpses of hope and light and also love trumps everything. And I think that's the biggest lesson here is like we are resilient as human beings and and love binds all of us. And in these moments of pure darkness, the light comes through. 
the love comes through and ultimately we all band together to fight this darkness and to fight this evil and i think that's what's what i always take away from these stories yeah try and focus on that i agree well said so here's the day after the shooting this is wgtv news reporting on the pearl high school shooting yeah this was actually uh somebody who recorded this on their vhs oh wow yeah of the of the news recording the day after and i think i thought it was important to include because i think it really kind of like brings you to what everybody in the community was seeing on tv uh so let's go ahead and play that nearly 24 hours after cracks of gunfire silenced the morning buzz at pearl high school Luke Woodham stepped into the sunlight for the first time since being arrested. Security was tight. Police officers flanked the Pearl High sophomore and he wore a bulletproof vest just in case. We were concerned about his safety as well as anyone else's. It was just a precautionary matter. Uh, we didn't feel it, you know, it was a, a anything would happen, but we wanted to make sure, do everything we could to protect him in case. Woodham took an uneventful ride to the Pearl Municipal Court. It was in stark contrast to the wild ride police say he made just a day earlier. Police say Luke Woodham killed his mother, then drove to school. He allegedly brought a gun with him, and a little after 8 Wednesday morning, police say he used it. When the shooting was done, two students lay dead. Seven others had been shot. There were more reporters than spectators at Woodham's court appearance Thursday, where he answered charges of murder and aggravated assault. Luke Woodham showed no emotion as he answered the judge's questions. He said that he does understand the charges against him. He entered a plea of not guilty through his public defender. It lasted less than 10 minutes. The judge denied Woodham bond. He'll once again see the light of day October 14th for another court hearing. Meanwhile, people in Pearl look for help in putting the pieces of shattered lives back together. Chris Pallone, JTV 12 News, Pearl. So after the shooting, the Pearl community and the entire country were in shock. Classes were canceled for the week at Pearl High. Meanwhile, Grant Boyette tried to distance himself from Luke Woodham, and he later told police that he only sometimes played video games with Luke, and that was basically it, which we know is a lie. On the other hand, another member of the Croth, known as Justin Sledge, who was the student that Luke gave his manifesto to on the day of the shooting, he decided to step more into the media spotlight and he wanted to explain everything that was going on with Luke. On the day of the shooting, Justin actually sat down for an exclusive interview with WLBT's Maggie Wade. Justin even showed the cameras the handwritten notes and tried to explain why Luke did what he did. Here's a clip of that interview. Good evening. It is quiet now at Pearl High School. The echoes of gunfire have long stopped ringing, but what happened there this morning weighs very heavily tonight. Yes, it does. As a community of Pearl deals with the deaths of three people, two Pearl High School students and the mother of the teenager charged in the shooting rampage, more light is being shed on why Luke Woodham killed. While the 16-year-old student left what a friend is calling a credo, a statement of belief, Woodham gave the handwritten statement to a friend about 30 seconds before he opened fire. Justin Sledge told us tonight in an exclusive interview that Luke Woodham did not kill only because of a breakup with a girlfriend. Justin Sledge was a classmate of Luke Woodham. He has known him since sixth grade. He says the picture the media and police have painted of Woodham is untrue. Woodham gave Sledge his credo or a statement of belief that Sledge believes he wrote after he killed his mother. In an exclusive interview, he read some of it to us 
Wednesday night. He begins, uh, I am not insane. I would like to repeat that again. I am not insane. I am angry. Uh, he says that the world has shit on him for the final time. He is not spoiled or lazy for murder. Is not weak and, is not weak and slow-witted. Murder is gutsy and daring. I killed people. I killed because people like me are mistreated every day. I do this to show society, push us, and we will push back. He also says it was not a breakup with his former girlfriend, Christina Menifee, that led to the murders. It was only a part of it. In the credo, Woodham writes, no one ever truly loved him, that he was mistreated every day. He blamed society and took out his anger at Pearl High School. It was not, it was not a cry for attention. It was not a cry for help. It was a cry. It was a scream and sheer agony saying, if I can't pry your eyes open, if I can't do it through pacifism, if I can't show you through display of intelligence, then I'll do it with a bullet. But police maintain this was a well-thought-out, calculated crime. We have statement from him, uh, his so-called manifesto, saying that it's over because uh, he felt he had been wronged. Justin Sledge tells us no one can justify or condone what Luke Woodham has done. But he says everyone needs to know the truth that Luke Woodham felt he would never make national news for being smart, but he did for being a killer. So Justin, as we can kind of see, he's trying to come off as highly intelligent. He claimed he was a scholar of philosophy and natural science, and he also said he practiced alchemy in his spare time. In one English paper, he wrote that his heart was like a, quote, dark, cold night that never ended. He also wrote, quote, when people comment, I wish I were as smart as you. I wish I could tell them of the massive sacrifice I've made for my mentality. Man, I know these are teenagers, but God, it's like, it was like I said earlier with Luke, it's like they're giving themselves too much credit. They think like, I'm just, I'm above you guys. Society is wrong. Right. And I'm kind Got of it all figured this, out. Yeah. And I just, that attitude, it's just disgusting. Well, and, and in that interview, he's almost like trying to justify his actions. Yeah. He's like, oh, if we, you know, can't do it with pacifism, then guess he's got to resort to a bullet. Right. It's just like, it definitely seemed like he was, the way he was speaking was in support of his friend. Right. It wasn't like, this is horrible. Don't think that I believe this as I before I read this. Yep. And yeah, that attitude. Obviously, people we were able to see that on TV, which concerned a lot of people in Pearl. And uh this got even worse over the next few days. On October second, a day after the shooting, someone pinned a note to the door of the school that said the Croth's numbers were diminished, but the group was still strong. It's believed Justin was the one that posted this note, although it's never been confirmed. Later that day, at a candlelight vigil for the shooting victims, Justin still tried to explain Luke's actions again. Probably not the best place to do this here, or anywhere really, but he got a hold of the microphone and told them Luke, quote, went mad because of society. We as a society must change. 
The visual goers then threatened to call police if Justin didn't leave immediately, so he gave up the microphone and went home. He was later suspended from school for five days for this behavior. And he later told school counselors that Luke Woodham didn't act alone. And Justin also said he got calls from at least 10 parents asking if their children were on the rumored hit list of people who bullied Luke and his friends. So the public was quickly aware that this problem wasn't just Luke, right? This is like multiple students here now is what it sounds like. So this concerned a lot of people. One of Luke's neighbors soon came forward and told police that they witnessed Luke and Grant abusing Luke's dog Sparkle back in April. Luke had held the dog down and Grant beat it with a stick. When police began looking at Luke's other friends, they soon suspected there might have been a larger conspiracy at play. As he investigated his friends, they soon found out about the Croth. Police only knew them as, quote, the group because they kept their name a secret. When classes resumed at Pearl High School, investigators began pulling members out of their classrooms to ask them questions. Grant, the oldest member, was currently attending classes at Hines Community College. Over time, rumors of satanic rituals and devil cults spread. Many members of the community became worried. A resident, Ricky Blaylock, said, quote, It's the grip of evil is what it is. His 15-year-old daughter Pam had escaped injury in the shooting, even though she was standing near Luke when he opened fire. Ricky also said, quote, It's the grip of Satan. He's got a grip on this world like you wouldn't believe. A few weeks after the shooting, a murder-suicide took place in Pearl, and a few weeks after that, a young man brought a gun to the community college campus and flashed it before getting into a fight. He was arrested before anything else could happen, but residents became terrified that, you know, all this new crime in their city was a result of, of Luke Woodham, pretty much. Within days of the shooting, the entrance of Pearl High School had been turned into a memorial. Students would leave messages of grief and stuffed animals and A large poster read, God help us heal, but another memorial note read, Luke is God, from your friends at Pearl High School. This concerned the community even more, and many people began buying into the satanic panic that was really sweeping the nation around this time period. Again, the 80s and the 90s were the height of the satanic panic era. A lot of this panic came from the case of the West Memphis Three in 1993 1994, which we haven't covered on the show, Um, and we'll... I think we're definitely going to need to cover it because I think it's it needs to be covered on Lights Out. I've covered it on my other podcast, Mile Higher, a while ago, but I think we can maybe dive into it a little bit more detail here because it really this case kind of started the you know started the fires when it comes to satanic panic, um, which was because there was you know three teenagers kind of similar to Luke Woodham uh, in some ways and kind of the outcast kind of into the the darker darker stuff you know magic and all that kind of stuff and they were accused of killing three children as part of satanic rituals so parents started thinking that countless teenagers were participating in satanic rituals and it was just kind of a rampant problem going on one pearl high school student later told investigators on the night before the shooting she had looked up in the sky outside of her window and she said it was red and spotted a cloud that was in the shape of a skull that's pretty wild When she saw this, she thought she knew it was Grant Boyette casting a spell. After the investigation, Grant Boyette, Wes Brownell, and Donald Brooks II, Alan Shaw, and Justin Sledge were also arrested and charged with conspiracy. All of them were 16 years old, except Donald, who was 17, and Grant, who was 18 at the time. Former County DA John Kitchen said, quote, 
The conduct engaged by those charged is so anti-Christian and anti-society that it is revolting, and he believes satanic activity was gaining popularity across the country. Which this statement coming from the DA, I think, is a maybe tad crossing the line there. You know, yeah, not really a separation of church and state or personal beliefs. You know, definitely some bias there, right? But Donald was soon released after being arrested and they discovered that he had reached out to police about four months earlier warning them about the violent nature of the group. But at the time, no one took him seriously. Justin Sledge was released on bail but was not allowed to contact the other conspirators or return to the school's property. So Luke Woodham ended up having two separate trials. One was for the school shooting and the other was for the murder of his mother. And his father and brother, neither of them attended either of the trials. But because of the case's notoriety, both trials were held in a county court to try and have an unbiased jury. Obviously, the you know it's tough to find a jury who is not emotionally and personally connected to something like this when it's affecting a community. So you, typically, they try to move to a county court to get a bigger pool. In the trial for his mother, Luke tried to explain his reasoning for killing her, and he put most of the blame on Grant. He explained to the jurors about meeting Grant and the event where he placed a spell on a boy who was later killed, and he also accused Grant of dealing the killing blow to his dog Sparkle. As he went on to explain the croth, he accused Grant of assigning each member a demon to do his bidding. And when it came down to the murder of his mother, Luke insisted that he couldn't even remember stabbing her to death. And then he went on to say, quote, y'all don't know what I went through You've never been in my shoes, and you sit here and condemn me for something that you all don't even know that I did. It's not right. During the trial of the school shooting, he claimed that he wasn't in control of himself when he did it. According to him, he had woken up that morning and saw demons, and these demons supposedly told him that he would be nothing if he didn't, quote, get to the school and kill those people. At this point in the trial, he then began sobbing in court and... His lawyer then told him to stop crying, and Luke responded, I'm trying. Luke's lawyers tried to argue that Grant was the one truly responsible for these crimes. They even tried to place him at the scene of the crime when Luke killed his mother, because at the crime scene they had recovered an unknown follicle of hair, and so these defense attorneys tried to argue that this was actually Grant's hair found at the crime scene. Detective Aaron Hirschfield whom Luke had confessed to, reminded the court that Luke never once mentioned Grant in his confession at all, but the detective also admitted that Grant being at the crime scene was a possibility. And then in regards to the confession, a week after his confession, Luke's attorney, Leslie Roussel, he said that Luke's confession wasn't legitimate, and they said, quote, put three police officers in a dark room with a 16-year-old, and you could probably get him to say he was on the grassy knoll in 1963. And I, okay, I agree with this. I think police officers are very aggressive in interrogations, especially with minors. But in this case, the officer didn't even really have to push him. He was asking no. questions. And if anything, Luke was telling him to kind of like hey, pipe down and tell yeah, him my like, story. Stop, let me talk. Yeah, so it didn't seem like it was a coerced confession. So what they had to do is they had to dig into the psychology, which, you know, we see this a lot in the cases we covered here. For both trials, Luke pled not guilty by reason of insanity. So during his trials, a psychologist from New Mexico, Dr. Mick Jepson, explained how Luke could kill his mother and commit a mass shooting. 
He had interviewed Luke for months before the trial, and Luke even confessed to him that he saw demons starting in the summer of 1997. Supposedly, they looked like red-cloaked beings with spikes on their heads and glowing eyes, and according to Luke, these demons then told him to go and kill people. Dr. Jepson concluded that Luke had problems with, quote, perceptual accuracy and reality, and his test results indicated that Luke might have suffered from borderline personality disorder. He also described him as a, quote, very psychologically disturbed youngster, and he believed that he was exploited by Grant. This combination made him, quote, helpless to judge the appropriateness of his behaviors. But another doctor, Chris Lott, was also brought in. He agreed that Luke had behavioral issues, but did not have borderline personality disorder. He believes he had narcissistic personality traits and thought he was, quote, special and smarter than others. Dr. Lott also interviewed Lucas Thompson, whom Luke had called the night before murdering his mother and the day of. Lucas claimed that Luke and Grant both viewed themselves as smarter than everyone else, which is kind of reiterating right. my, my opinion of them, to the point where they excluded members of the Croth, but Lucas never thought that Luke was delusional. Dr. Lott also claimed that Luke was not suffering from any severe mental illness at the time of the murders. He believed Luke never saw demons, and he understood the difference between right and wrong the entire time. He said, quote, He's not right. He's not normal. He has problems. But he is not so ill that, in my opinion, he has any major mental disorders. So very conflicting uh, examinations there. Yep. Basically polar opposites. Yeah. They agreed kind of on, you know, behavioral problems, but it seems like that's as far as it went. At the trial of the murder of his mother, the jurors deliberated for about three hours. It was a stormy day in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and the courthouse had just lost power, which set everyone on edge. When they returned to give their verdict, the courtroom was dark. Some of the jurors returned to the courtroom crying. In the end, Grant might have influenced Luke, but it was agreed that Luke was the one who carried out the crimes. They found him guilty of the murder of his mother, and he was later sentenced to life in prison. When he was ushered out of the courtroom by several police officers, he wore a bulletproof vest. Once outside, journalists swarmed him. One of them asked if he thought he was going to heaven or hell, and Luke responded, I'm going to heaven now. This is God's will. When I asked him for any last words, he said, God bless you all. Just, uh, hmm. I really struggle wrapping my head around this. Yeah, very confusing. Statement. I think maybe he's having a, a crisis of faith here or something, and he just doesn't know what is going on. At the trial of the school shooting, he was found guilty of two counts of murder and seven counts of aggravated assault. He was later sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and seven 20-year sentences. During the trial, Christina Menefee's grandmother called Luke a, quote, genetic waste. She also accused him of initiating a chain of satanic events across the country that, quote, wreaked havoc on her children. After his sentencing, Luke said, quote, I'm sorry for the people I killed and hurt. The reason you see no tears anymore is because I've been forgiven by God. If they could have given the death penalty in this case, I deserve it. In February of 2000, Grant Boyette pled guilty to a charge of conspiracy. He had originally been charged with additional three counts of accessory to murder, but those charges were later dropped for lack of evidence. In a court hearing, Grant said that none of what he told Luke was supposed to be taken seriously. He claimed he didn't know Luke was actually planning to do any of those things. 
One of Grant's old best friends testified against him, and at some point, his friend had distanced himself from Grant and went to become a minister even. He told the court Grant's behavior had been on the decline for some time and that he was a manipulative person. Grant was sentenced to attend the regimented inmate disciplinary program at Parchment. This was basically a boot camp style program, and he was sentenced to five years of supervised probation after that. I'm like, wow, those are no easy, easy peasy charges there. Yeah. All other charges against other Croft members are dropped at the request of DA John Kitchens. He believed their charges of conspiracy would be too difficult to prove. A few years later, when Justin Sledge was 22 years old, he was caught buying an unregistered firearm online and he pled guilty and faced a maximum of 10 years in federal prison and a $250,000 fine. But he was only sentenced to four months in prison, four months on house arrest, and three months probation instead. Supposedly, he later converted to Judaism and became a professor of philosophy and esoterica. He also taught classes at several colleges in Metro Detroit, and he now lives in Detroit with his partner and two children. That's quite the life change there. Right. However, Grant Boyette is currently a free man and hasn't been in any more legal trouble since. He also has a wife and two children in Mississippi. To this day, people are still trying to wrap their heads around what happened that day. An old classmate of Luke's, Christina Shores, once saw Luke as meek and kind of different. She said he just didn't relate to a lot of kids, which made him a target. Christina's mother had been the bus driver when they were in school, and she always made Luke sit behind her to try and stop the bullying. She'd even sometimes give Luke a blow pop. Some days Luke would be quiet the entire bus ride. Sometimes they would talk about their favorite TV show, Gilligan's Island. If it was a hot day, Luke would talk about his dog Sparkle, saying that she needed a haircut and worrying if she had enough water to keep her cool. Christina and her mother still find it hard to believe that Luke was capable of what he did. And they, along with many others, believe that Grant Boyette was also responsible for the shooting, which I tend to agree with. I think he has way more responsibility in this than what they were able to legally go after him for, but they think that Luke was afraid of losing his friendship with Grant and that he did whatever Grant asked him to do. Both Christina and her mother also believe that the authorities didn't do everything that they could have. The media made them too focused on the devil worshipping and a satanic panic, and it drew too much focus away from what was actually wrong with Luke, as well as all the visible warning signs that they missed. Today at Pearl High School, two plaques dedicated to Lydia Dew and Christina Menifee rest at the base of the flagpole out in front. Jeff Cannon, the assistant band director who watched over the commons that day, still has nightmares every year around October you can still see the lifeless faces of Lydia and Christine in his mind. There's actually a clip of him talking in 2020 about his nightmares. They'll die away until something like this happens again and you get to relive it because whether you're a student or a staff or a teacher that morning, we got sentenced to life living that experience. And every time a school shooting happens, we relive it. Anybody that, that lived through that has nightmares. How can you not look in the face of a dead child and not remember that? Man, I, I feel him on that one because it's like not only do the anniversaries come up and you kind of start thinking about it again, but yeah, every time another school shooting happens, it's like you all have to relive it now. Um, you know, you've been through it, so you have to go through the whole empathy process of being like, yeah, I've, I've been a part of this too, and now you hear about another one another one yeah now it's just like a re reoccurring event that seems to happen at least once every year if not more yeah but he does believe that the true message of that awful day is how the city of pearl overcame it 
Only a few days after the shooting, parents of the students demanded that the school reopen its doors, and some parents said, We're not letting these people take our school. Every day we're closed is a victory for them. Which I, I stand with them on that, like, absolutely. By yeah. shutting everything down and, and kind of continuing to fear what happened is just adding to everything that they were trying to do. Students returned to the school in spite of the tragedy, and just two weeks after the shooting, the high school band attended the state band competition, and they were given a 10-minute standing ovation. In a 2021 interview, Jeff Cannon said, quote, Concentrate on the fact that the community overcame it, the school overcame it, and we don't allow it to define us except for the fact that we overcame it. Bob Menefee, Christina's father, later believed that his daughter was targeted because she had taken the time to be kind to a boy who considered himself a social misfit. He said, quote, as far as he was concerned, she was the only girl in the world. Luke actually kept in contact with Bob for some time during his incarceration. Bob's wife died not long after the shooting, sadly, and he actually went on to become a minister. According to Luke, Bob later forgave him, and Luke claimed he now leans towards Christianity, and he spends his days in maximum security prison. His father, John, only visited him once about a month after the shooting, and his brother, John Jr., only visited once or twice. At the time of his conviction, he was eligible for capital punishment, but soon after the shooting, the laws were changed, making it possible to bring the death penalty against anyone who kills on educational property. In 2004, Luke's request for post-conviction relief was rejected, and in 2011, Luke asked the governor for clemency, but was rejected again. And uh, here's a quick little interview clip of Governor Haley Barber being asked about granting clemency for Luke. Well, of course, it hadn't come to my office, but I've heard about it. And as I was quoted as saying, uh, I can't imagine. I mean, I'd be flabbergasted if the parole board recommended giving it clemency. And that's the process before it gets to me, goes to the parole board, and they make a recommendation to me. And uh, I'd like to say I would be, you know. The chances of them saying yes would be like the chance of me flying up to be on top of that house <laughs> in the next 10 seconds. Wow. Yeah. Also a very political answer because it's like, it's he doesn't answer if he would grant him clemency. No. He says, hey, it's not on my desk. I don't have to really right. deal with it, but I doubt it's going to happen. On January 20th, 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that those sentenced as teenagers to mandatory life sentences for murder must be given a chance to argue they should be released from prison. Luke's lawyers argued that his sentencing was unconstitutional and the 140-year sentence should run concurrently with his life sentence. The reevaluation of his case is still ongoing to this day, and Luke is currently 43 years old and will actually be eligible for parole in 2046, so still quite a ways away, 22 years from now. But, man, just an absolutely tragic story. Yeah, very sad case um, with not a whole lot of answers to it, you know, asks a lot of questions. And it's also sad just to reflect on the fact that this was 97 and we're still dealing with this problem to this day. The whole, you know, concept or problem, depending on who you are, of the satanic panic is very interesting to me because it seems to have had a much bigger impact on society than i think many of us 
like to realize. I would think I was too young. Yeah. I didn't live through it, so I didn't really feel the impact because by the time I was, you know, old enough, it was already done by then. Well, and and I think it still continues to this day even. Um I mean, you still see cases of you know, where witchcraft is involved or even Wiccans are involved and you know, oftentimes investigators bring up satanism, devil worshiping and rituals and things like that into the myths and I think I think it does I think it's kind of rooted in the, the history of our system and how it's kind of you know based on these principles of Christianity you know like how that's kind of intertwined into into our government system so I, I understand why you know a lot of politicians tend to go to you know this is anti-god this is anti-christianity and yeah and it's like you know satanism is inherently counterculture that's kind of the basis of it all but i also think it's scapegoated to a degree where it's just like we can just take all these problems and dump it into right, totally it's satanism it's it's whatever we we don't really have to parse through it right on an individual level we can just dump it all over there yeah satan bad these are bad things goes with satan yeah not god right exactly. even though people kill in the name of god all the time all the time yeah so yeah it's definitely scapegoated for sure and misunderstood and again like a lot of people who claim to be satanic cults or satanic groups are oftentimes taking a mixture of materials and creating their own version of what they call sat satanism or devil worshiping and like in this case it was a bunch of different texts being kind of put together and then grant ultimately being like you know i'm close to satan and i can send demons and cast spells and and just young impressionable kids that are getting you know convinced by this guy that he's he's really you know super cool and he's got all these kind of powers and he can actually like make things happen and i think luke fell into his trap completely and that's why i think grant should 100 percent have yeah. faced more severe punishment because he really was the catalyst in this in this case i feel i agree i agree grant really didn't get punishment for what he deserved but yeah i i would assume that that case was probably really hard to prove in a court of law yeah right? it's like where do we find this evidence and how how can we be certain that grant wasn't just shooting the shit and talking about stuff and kind of living in this fantasy world that they talked about you know, how do you actually prove something like that? I think it would be incredibly hard. I think had they had videotapes, recordings of yeah. conversations and of their meetings and maybe had more, you know, more physical evidence to back these uh, allegations up, I think ultimately maybe they would have been able to go further with it. But I agree with you. I think it's like, they have no way of knowing yeah. what his intention truly was. I mean, for all we know, Grant was just manipulating all of them for his own selfish reasons. And, you know, he didn't really care about any of them. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you know, that's what they did. I didn't do anything. Right. I also think it's that has changed significantly now because if something like this happens, it's like pull the texts. We have all the texts right. and we can parse through all these conversations out, all the emails, everything where it's 1997. You had unrecorded phone calls and private conversations, and there's really no trail left. So now that's a bit different, luckily. I mean, for better or worse, you could call it Big Brother. You can call it whatever it is. But 
at least in cases like this, we would have had a clearer picture of, of what was going on, but behind closed doors and the conversations that they actually had. Yeah. I think there's probably so much more that we don't know to with this, this particular case that, you know, we don't know everything that was presented in the trial. And, you know, I think, I think it was very easy, a very easy case for them to prosecute because of just everything that he wrote, his manifesto. And I mean, he, and his confession, of course, like he just laid everything out for them. Um, and you know, wasn't, wasn't that hard for them to ultimately get justice in this, in this case. Um, I do find it interesting that, you know, the Supreme court ruled that, you know, if you kill as a minor and get life sentence, that you have an opportunity to, you know, fight that essentially. And I think, I think that's definitely a good thing, right? You should give a minor an opportunity to try to fight for a, for a different sentence later on. What do you think about that? Like I, I tend to have a lot of sympathy towards minors because I think if a minor is failing in this capacity, I know we've talked about this before where it's like you've committed an adult crime, you should serve an adult sentence, but it's, I, there are too many factors involved here with minors. You're a 16 year old. Can you be held accountable for everything that you do? I think you clearly always need to take responsibility for your actions first and foremost. But at the same time, I think if a child is failing to this extent, there's, we need to shine light on uh, what other factors were responsible for something like this to even occur. Um, and it's scary that things like this can even occur that, you know, just even the listening to the neighbor talk where it's just like, Hey, we wouldn't have thought twice about Luke. He was just kind of a quiet kid right. kept to himself. There was never any problems over there. So when well, it makes me think too, that oftentimes the, the justice system looks to make examples out of people too. And I think this is one of those cases where they were, you know, especially in the satanic panic era, they want to try to like, come down really really hard on somebody who is you know outwardly practicing these things and talking about those things and versus you know i think of many cases in the past 10 20 years of minors that have killed people and it could be a you know a rich kid who gets you know kills somebody with his vehicle right and is recklessly driving or drunk or whatever it may be and they end up killing a whole family um, in another vehicle and they get a lesser sentence than Luke did in this case. And I often wonder about that. And I'm like, and you know, it's also about get a public defender, you know what I mean? Like, would this right. case have been different had he had a f- access to, you know, the best of the best defense attorneys and That's a good point versus, you know, you see oftentimes with kids who are wealthy or come from well-off families or parents who are very active in their children's lives, they often get a different sentence a different punishment sometimes so i would i often just remind myself like is the justice system really fair and just unfortunately and it's not and i think history shows that time and time again because i think in this case it was like we need this was a major deal i mean they hadn't seen anything like this and they're like we got to make an example out of him and so they gave him the harshest sentence they possibly could i mean basically sentence that exceeds his lifetime Right. And then even beyond that, they extended the law so that any uh, crimes occurring on a, a, what are they, 
the terminology was educational property and something, I don't know, something to do with murder on educational property can be right, capital right. punishment, right? Which I don't think that's really solving the issue too. That's just, you're reacting to this horrible tragedy that occurred. And, you know, you could talk about deterrence and whatnot, but it's been proven time and again that capital punishment doesn't really deter people from doing these crimes. And it's more important to focus on the mitigation and like, how could we have, how could we have mitigated this problem long before it ever escalated to this point? Because especially with this case, I think we see time and again, the failures of different systems happening before us. And now we're more hyper aware of, of it now. And I wonder um, if, if Luke would have, would have come around in 2023, would we have caught these things? Would we have flagged the English essays? Would we have paid more attention to the domestic abuse uh, phone calls that they made to the shelter and the counselor coming around? Would the police have taken the friend more seriously, Donald Brooks, when he came forward and said, hey, these guys were trying to convince me to kill my father, you know? I don't know. I think it's... I think there's so many factors at play and we just see so many things fail that it's just kind of heartbreaking. It adds insult to injury to the whole thing. And continue to fail. Yeah. It's like we still have these same problems right. that exist in 97 and here we are in 2024. And it really feels like we're not learning anything. It's yeah. either we are learning things and just nobody wants to act on the things that clearly need fixed. And so it just continues to be a problem. But I think that's the most maddening thing about all this is like we're talking 97 to 24 and it, the problem's only gotten far, far worse. Right. And like there are these active shooters who post to social media like the day before. And it's like, how is this even happening that someone can be, especially a student can be just so open about this on social media and no one's really taking it as seriously as they should. I don't know. It's mind-boggling, and it is. It's a such a complex issue that there's so many different pieces of the puzzle that need to be need to be fixed. And you know, there's no simple solution, but it just seems sometimes like nothing's happening. And you know, we wonder why these things keep happening. And it's just like, when are we going to do something? So. Yeah, I've got such a bummer yeah, way to, no. to end this, but Sorry, I don't really guys. Know. Yeah, it's yeah, there's just no. a depressing episode here. Sorry about that, but we we hope that you gain something from this. I, I certainly gained something from parsing through all this. I, don't know, I yeah. hope you did. Yeah, yeah, I always do. And just, I think, again, I go back to Mr. Cannon's statements of, you know, it's about how the community overcame this tragic event and, you know, I think as a community, you, you grow stronger and, you know, hopefully it brings people together. It's, it's just so horrible that it takes, sometimes it takes these horrible events to happen for everybody to like realize like, oh, you know, we are a community. We, we do band together. We do all love each other. And, you know, hopefully in turn causes people to be more vigilant and aware of what's going on. And again, ultimately it's about, you know, Christina and Lydia. And I mean, they tragically lost their lives in this event and, can't imagine what their parents have have dealt with over the years and just the pain and agony of losing your children in this way is beyond comprehension so i want to remember them of course um and so we'll go ahead and end the episode there thank you guys for joining us for another one sorry this one was so dark but i think it was an important story to tell but we will see you guys 
next week.